You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Dr. Terry Roberts is many things, too many to list. But for the purposes of this interview, I'm going to focus on three of the things Terry is. Terry is an award-winning novelist, a teacher and scholar who was the director of the National Paideia Center, and a Christian. Terry and I are going to be talking a good deal about his writing and his novels, but we also will be talking about how each of these three dimensions of Terry's life interplay and are integrated. Because of the length and depth of Terry's experience in each of these areas, he is ideal for helping us to explore important questions about art, education, and faith, and about being an artist, educator, and a person of faith. In his novels, Terry has a way of engaging us in fascinating and thrilling stories, teaching us a good deal about history and culture, entertaining us and making us laugh, while all the while plunging us, usually by some offhand comment with penetrating insight, into deep reflection on things that matter. In my mind, all of that creates the potential for a wonderful conversation I have no doubt that you will enjoy. Well, welcome, Terry. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you, David. It's a delight. Uh, thank you for, for hosting this conversation. I'm looking forward to it. So let's begin by kind of letting you tell your own story, uh, your own life journey, because it has three different components that we're looking at uh, today. And uh, uh, so let's let's let you tell that story. Well, I suppose the three components, uh, based on your wonderful introduction, has to do with a um, my world, my life in education, my career really in education. Uh, the second piece has to do with my later in life career as a novelist. I've really only been writing novels for 10 years, almost exactly, since the publication of A Short Time to Stay Here. And so that's a twist on on other avenues, I suppose you'd say, or journeys. And then the last one, of course, has to do with um, the spiritual journey, you know, where you began, in essence, spiritually, and then how that plays out over the course of a lifetime. Um, I might start there and then talk a bit about education and then talk a bit about a little bit about novel writing just to kind of weave the three together because it, it really uh, it doesn't if you treat them separately it's like I led three lives instead of one life that was a little more complicated I suppose so the spiritual journey really goes back um, to my mother's influence more than anything else she was a devout Christian I grew up um, kind of under her influence and then in the influence of the First Baptist Church in my local town, which was a small town in western North Carolina, uh, a solid rock Baptist church, I would call it, a member of the good old Southern Baptist Convention. And I think there were, in a way, warring influences there for the simple reason that on the one hand, my mother was a profoundly kind woman. She was a generous woman. She was in many ways um, almost the quintessential New Testament Christian. She believed in the goodness of others. She believed in, if not the perfectibility of her neighbors, at least that they could be saved from themselves, I suppose you would say. Um, she was also gentle. I mean, she was, she was never harsh spoken. She was never loud. She was never aggressive. And then, um, but by the same token, she took my sister and me to the First Baptist Church, where along the way, um, we heard a lot of hell, good old-fashioned hellfire and brimstone sermons, which to me as a boy were, in, in some instances, not every case, but in some instances were quite frightening, because I believe that from an early age, um, I, I was what I call in one of the novels word cursed. I believed in the power of words. And if a if an authority figure told me something was so uh, and in powerful and compelling language, it was hard for me to ignore um, 
my wife Lynn often says she sat through all the same sermons and never batted an eye because she was busy coloring the, the bulletin, you know. <laughs> and and I think there's some truth in that. I mean, I, you know, either either you take what that man in those days it was a man up there behind the the podium is shouting at you. Either you take it seriously or you don't. And if and if you don't, I think it becomes kind of ridiculous in a way. You know, the the more emotional, the more heightened, the more the more um, dramatic the rhetoric. And so I did take it seriously. I took it quite seriously as a child. Uh, I was baptized, I think, at mm, nine or ten, early, young, young to be baptized, and continued for a time to take it seriously, and then suffered kind of the, I mean, I guess the classical um, questioning of of the faith in the sense that it began to feel to me instinctively, instinctually, that that a that a religious practice based on fear, for one thing, um, wasn't fundamentally true. You couldn't talk about love out of one side of your mouth and talk about fear out of the other side of your mouth and somehow make those two things reconcile. Or I couldn't, at any rate. Um, and so that that began a long process 60 years worth 55 years worth of, of of not searching because in every instance i don't know that i was consciously searching but certainly questioning um what is the nature of the spiritual impulse at what is it directed so forth and so on how do we know when spiritual practice is genuine and nurturing um how do we know when it, it is generative, when it is making love in the congregation as opposed to creating fear and in some cases loathing? So, again, those two factors have been there for me for most of my life and and caused me, you can say, to do a lot of soul searching, but it's not the kind of dramatic soul searching that you read in the biography of the preacher, because I'm not a preacher, you know. and or the biography of the theologian, because I'm not a theologian. I'm some, I'm a different animal. So, but certainly I'm a questioner. I am by profession in some ways a questioner, which brings us to education. The second second piece you mentioned. Uh, I was a high school English teacher. Um, in addition to having a lifelong love for nature, I've had a lifelong love for books, for writing, and so it was natural that I would major in English and. And, and somewhat natural that I would become a teacher. And after teaching for a decade, I went on to work. Eventually, I earned a Ph.D. in American literature, again, out of a love for books, love for writing, love for human expression and language. And then eventually, after that, went to work for the National Padilla Center. And the National Padilla Center is a is a nonprofit that's dedicated to rigor and equity in public schools, but its signature is the Socratic seminar, is the open and candid and civil discussion of ideas. So that I, that notion that one can live a question, a, a, a human question, a profound question, over years is is something that is not only that I'm personally comfortable with, but it's also something that that fits with my my day life. And I've done that since 1992. So uh, on the cusp of having done that for 30 years. So it's been a long, um, devoted, uh, intense professional life that, and I've written a lot of nonfiction about education, uh, in it, a number of books about dialogue, about critical thinking, about the nature of language, you know, the list goes on and on. But which in turn, I guess you could say, brings us to this idea of writing novels. Like so many of us word-cursed individuals, book bookaholics, um, I thought in my 20s I could write the great American novel and was, and was um, dramatically, tragically, entertainingly wrong. I wrote a lot of bad, not, you know, a lot of bad fiction then, and, di and then didn't for gosh, I don't know, almost 30 years, not quite, let's call it 25 years. And then in my early 
50s, late 40s, early 50s, began to work on something, I think more to entertain myself and perhaps my children than anything else, but but that story became a short time to stay here, and it was published 10 years ago. Original, well, it was published in 2013 originally, um, and so over these past years, 10 years, um, there have been there have been four novels and and another one on the way, and so it that part of the the uh, journey, I guess you'd say became a very real and intense part of who I am. Um, it's taken me a while to adjust to it almost, you know, to answer to the, to when somebody shouts author in the room, it's not something I would immediately respond to, but I've learned to, to uh, I guess you'd say, identify with that. So all of those things are woven together. Uh, and I think in some ways you could argue that they're, they are related. If they're not first cousins, they're close. Perhaps they're complements, in a sense, to each other. How do you, how do you see that complement? How do you see the interweaving of that? Yeah, I think the, the education work has a lot to do with, with um, helping others come to a point where they can think for themselves and express themselves. It's not, at least the Padea piece, the Socratic seminar piece, is not designed for me to teach them the way or teach them um, what, in a sense, to think. Now, this is a kind of a bumper stickerism, but but really is designed to teach them to think for themselves and speak for themselves. The novel writing, on the other hand, is is my way, I, I would propose that I think and speak for myself which is which is different it's you know that's when you write a novel you're not in as a general rule in the best of all worlds you're not answering to anybody else uh, even the reading public in a sense if you if you choose to go that route you're really in a way answering to your muse whatever that muse is but but and you're trying to make the best book you can possibly make. And it's, and I, you know, it's a book nobody else can write. People can write wonderful novels and, and in all likelihood better novels, but they can't write that novel. Only you can write that novel. And so I think on the one hand, you've got this, this day job wherein my role is to nurture the ability to think and speak candidly and empathetically, uh, civilly in others. But the novel writing on the other hand is, is, is mine. It's an expression of some inner reality that in some sense others don't share. Well, there are, there are folks that um, see themselves uh, speaking their faith through their art. Uh, and so they identify themselves as a Christian musician, Christian writer, um, you know, the, the Gettys write hymns, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, uh, but Al City or, or Bono, uh, do popular music, uh, and, and their faith informs that. Uh, so how does that, how does that play for you? Because, you know, your novels aren't, aren't intentionally spiritual. Yeah. Uh, they they contain spiritual dimensions to them, but but so how do you how do you interweave the the faith part with the art part? How do you? Kind <laughs> That's a good of... question. Yeah. Well, first of all, I guess I would have to say I'm not a a Christian novelist in the sense that when I sit down to write a book, which you know you sit down over and over and over again for two or three four years in some cases. My intent is not to express necessarily express a a specifically Christian doctrine um, to th- explain the ways of God to man, to explain the ways of of New Testament Christianity to man. I'm closer to being a writer who happens to be a Christian in the way you sort of set up the the comparison 
in the sense that, of course, I was raised in the Christian church. I'm in, immersed in the in the in the theology, in a sense, the tradition might be a better word of the Christian church. And because I'm a word person, um, and was raised on the on the King James Bible, you know, this this very much comes forth in a in Holy Ghost Speakeasy and Revival. That language to me is incredibly powerful and incredibly vibrant and evocative. You know, list goes on and on. And, and so I have all that woven into, you know, the fabric of who I am. And in that sense, when I ask a question about human nature, about the, the, uh, what it means to be human, it, it almost invariably has to come through a lens that is shaped, colored by, you know, my own my own history as a Christian. And so I think that's, I think there's anything wrong with that. The only, I guess what I would also say is, I want, and I'll say it this way. I once heard John Ely, he wasn't being formally interviewed. I had introduced him to someone. He's, he's one of my great heroes and friend, dear, dear friend, who is a marvelous novelist writer. And this person was saying, but Mr. Ely, don't you think of yourself as a writer? And he said, mm, no. And the person said, well, don't, when you were writing the books, your wonderful books, didn't you think of yourself as a writer? And John's reply was, I didn't think of myself at all. And so there's a, I, you know, the, there's a sense in which when you're immersed, I would say for me, when you're immersed in, in a novel and it's going well, and the characters are moving and speaking and acting. There's there's very for me very little self consciousness, right? Self awareness, like oh, I better be careful. I can't let him say that, or I can't let her do that, or how will that reflect on me, or what are my beliefs about that? It really, in some sense, becomes about the characters, you know. And we can say more about that later. But and and so there's a way in which, of course. It comes out of my imagination, and so it has to be colored, you know, by my experiences as a Christian, but it's not a conscious act. And so I suppose you would say in that way, I'm not in the, in the sense you might phrase it, a Christian writer who's deliberate, who is setting about to create something that is either informs Christianity or is a commentary on Christianity. So then how do you decide, how did you decide and still do decide uh, to write what you write? Most of the time, the books are fueled by a either a, a, a troubling question or a, a, a complex of questions. Um, that Bright Land, for example, was based on the assumption that most of us as adults, if you've lived past, let's say, the age of 30, are scarred in some sense. We've been wounded by life, by experience. And so what I was interested in was the nature of healing and the question that drove that bright land from, from the get-go, from the drop, had to do with what is the nature of healing for an individual human being, for a family, group, and for a community. Um, and I chose to write about the period of time in Western North Carolina just following the Civil War because it was a period in our, in our human history when everyone was wounded. I mean, if you were alive, you were wounded. And that included the children, that included the women, that included just about everybody in some sense or other. And so that for me, a book like that starts as a question. It, it doesn't start as an answer. And and in some cases, I don't know that if if after it was all over and done with three years later, four years later, if you said to me, OK, sum it all up. What is the nature of human healing? I don't know that I could, but I could I could point to the book and I could say. 
all of this is in the fabric of, of human healing. Um, this most recent book, um, my, uh, my Mistress Isa Raven Black, which is set on Ellis Island, that book began, begins and ends with the question, why is it that we as human beings are so tragically vulnerable um, to hating others, to, to fearing others, to, to drawing a line in the sand and not letting others pass? Why, what is it about us? And, and again, it's not a political book. It, it is in some sense by implication, but really it's a human book. It's about why are we that way? And, and is there any hope for us as a species given that? Um, so how, how I decide is, is essentially what questions at that point in my life trouble me most deeply. And, and again, because I, when you set out, it's a lonely, long distance running kind of experience. You're going to spend, the, again, three years. If you're in quarantine, two years maybe, but more likely three or four years. Living that question and, and, and not having a ready answer, not waking up the next morning and say, oh, now I get it. <laughs> the answer is X. Yeah. Well, if it's that kind of question, it's not going to make a very good novel. You know, it's it's not human enough. It's not troubling enough. It's not deep enough. And so it's the questions that are stock and trade. Occasionally I'll hear a novelist or a writer, let's just say, say, well, I'm here to explain to human beings about blank, fill in the blank. You know, I'm going to teach my readers, what they should think about this, that, or the other thing. And I'm deeply suspicious of that. I don't, I don't think that makes very good drama. I don't think it makes very good fiction um, because it's too prescriptive. Well, um, it sounds existential for you then, the, that, the, that the, the purpose of writing, the purpose of art uh, is to ask existential questions. Um, is that accurate? I think so. Um, I think so. And I think that in part because I would argue that to a certain extent we're all existentialists. And again, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not, we don't have to delve too deeply into the philosophy, but by that I mean, in the lonely middle watches of the night when we wake up and we lay there in bed and we can't go back to sleep and the questions that trouble us um, that are that are racing through our mind i know few people who live a life untroubled by that kind of experience so there's a way in which i do think great literature you know, and this this takes us now into a new realm, and I, I would, I don't know that I would argue that my books fit this, but <laughs> but great literature does build a sense of commonality, community. Um, we recognize in the characters some version of ourselves, and in so recognizing ourselves recognize as well the, the the question now again in a in a in a play in a novel in a longer written art form the characters live in all likelihood much more dramatic lives right the gun is brought on stage and then it's fired the house burns down the the someone is in prison um yeah you, know, you see what i'm saying in other words it's it's dramatized it's colored in very bright and vibrant bright and vibrant colors in some cases, but, but at the end of the day, um, they are existential, they're existential questions for me, and I think they're existential questions for the characters, and I suppose, and I'm, and I'm casting my mind back over the, the four novels that have been published, I think that in each case, they reach a resolution. Now, is the resolution an answer, as it were? Um, 
Yes and no. I th- for me, it is. For me, it is a it is an answer, but it's not a prescription. You know, you can't write it on a pad and sign a doctor's name to it, and you know, hand it to the patient, and they go cash it. You know, cash it in at the drugstore and take that medicine, and life will be good. I. You know, but but they are in a sense they're. Their resolutions, and I, and again, you know, I spent years and years writing a lot of nonfiction about education, and so those books are full of answers. You know, do this, and your classroom will be better. Do that, and your school culture will be more humane and successful. You know, et cetera, et cetera. But the novels are different. The novels, maybe one, what you could say about them in a sense is that they're meditations, in a way. So why did you um, choose this particular form? Because, you know, we, 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 we know Hemingway for novels, but we don't know Walt Whitman for novels. We know Walt Whitman for poetry or, or Wallace Stevens or somebody like that for poetry. Do you write poetry? Uh, no, not really. Not so that it, it, it should ever be allowed out into the. You know, <laughs> um, I think I think for me, novels are a long form because. In some sense, I'm slow. By that, I mean, I don't begin, and you know, to say that I'm existential in this regard is 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 correct. I don't begin by knowing the answer. I begin by by thinking I know the question. And my experience in writing these novels has been that along the way, the characters, begin if it works and they don't always work but if it works the characters begin to move think speak in some regard for themselves and some of the best passages are passages that weren't in the outline if there was an outline they i didn't go to bed the night before say ah when i get up in the morning i'm going to write that scene where Stephen Robbins does this. I may, but I don't always. And and quite often, what Stephen Robbins does, or Jake Ballard, or Lucy Paul, or Anna Allman, what they do is, in a very real way, unexpected on a conscious level, and um, instructive meaning they teach me. And so there's a way in which, when you, for me, again, I can't speak for others. So, you know, others, I think, have different sorts of experiences. But when I sit down to do this, it is a long, a long meditation on a given question. And what I'm really after is some sense of understanding. You know, if, if it's not too bold, you could just say wisdom. I don't know, but but certainly resolution, both dramatic, philosophical, um, so that the characters arrive at a place where there's a full stop. And you've said everything at this point, or I've said everything at this point that I know to say about that. I've gone as far as as the question will take me and as far as the characters can go in response to the question. Um, yeah, I suppose I'd, I suppose I'd stop there. I like the, I like the word resolution rather than answer in the sense that what I think a resolution does is bring all these various elements into some kind of balance, some kind of juxtaposition. Sometimes it's just, and it's going to sound like funny, but it's beautiful. Sometimes it's uh, emotionally pleasing. Sometimes it's um, intellectually pleasing. But it, but it is, in a sense, a resolution. Um, the other thing I'll say about the ending of novels is that I do believe language has incredible power. I mean, it has incredible power in scripture. It has incredible power in music. It has incredible power in any number of of, of genres, etc. But for me, the the beauty of um, the long form, the novel, um, 
again, two, three years, four years perhaps to write a long book. The beauty of that is, for me, you learn almost a whole new language. You learn the language of the book and the language of the characters, but you also you you learn a tremendous amount about why people do what they do and um, what their what the inner workings of those clocks, those human clocks, is like, and how that translates into their overt actions and words and. And so what I hope is that I learn something, and I also hope that it's an explanation, or in a way, for the reader. It's it's a has a similar effect on the reader. They they leave the book knowing more, feeling more, understanding more than they did in the beginning, but without a pat answer, without a ready-made say. You know, I don't know. Say say three hail marys and. And spin around three times and kneel in the floor, and you'll you'll be cured. You know, it's not that kind of not that kind of answer. Well, the settings of your book uh, are kind of turn of the century, except for the Civil War one. Uh, you know, but but it's it's within that that time frame, post Civil War, before World War Two. Uh, why is that? That's a great question. I, part of the reason is I, I once had this conversation with Doris Betts, and she lived long enough to read a short time to stay here before she died. And she was a great, great writer and a great teacher. And, and she said, I don't understand why anybody would write a book set in the past. And my reply was, well, I don't understand why anybody would write a book set in the present. You know, and the. Um, but her point being that, it, you know, why not just set the darn thing? you know, 2020 in West Asheville and be done with it, right? And then people will immediately, perhaps, see the relevance. Well, part of the problem for me is that I think human society and human culture is cyclical. I think, you know, the same questions, the same problems, the same issues arise over and over again, and we deal with them over and over again. And so in setting a book in a, in a different time frame, and I've wondered about, I don't know that I would go any further back than the Civil War, but because of the language. I want the language to feel genuine, even if it's not perfectly historically accurate. I don't I, I can imagine a book set in the 40s and 50s in the United States, perhaps. But the closer you get to the current reality, I think the danger becomes that people read the book as a commentary on current issues. For example, um, My Mistress Eyes Are Raven Black is set in 1920 on Ellis Island. Ostensibly, it's about immigration. And I started, I had the idea, I had taken a lot of notes, I'd sketched this thing before 2016, before the presidential election of 2016, when all of a sudden, immigration just blew up in everybody's face, right? I mean, we're going to build a wall, and somebody else is going to pay for it, you know? And so it, what I, what I worked really hard to avoid is that it be read as political commentary that it be read as a commentary on the current reality. Now, does it, in some indirect way, oblique way, speak to our lives now? Well, I hope so, because it's, a, it's about human beings. But, but what it's really about is something deeper. You know, it's, it's not really about Republican and Democrat. It's not really about liberal and conservative. It's not, it really is about human beings, you know, and why we operate the way we operate and think and feel the way we do. So there's a very real sense in which you can write a book and set it in the past. And in that regard, I think, approach deeply human questions, questions which are relevant right now, obliquely, so that you not sneak up on people. I wouldn't say it that way, but 
But what you're doing is saying to your reader, just step back, take a deep breath. This is a human problem. It's not a political problem. You know, it's not on the evening news, no matter what station you watch. This is this is something that lives beyond that and behind that. And that's the kind of thing I want to write about. So so setting the novels in the past, I hope. Let's me do that. And let's I think other writers do the same thing. I mean. And in that regard, we're able to explore issues that are contemporary for the simple reason that they're they're deeply human issues, but without raising everybody's defenses, you know, immediately. Uh, that Bright Land is, is about a time in American history when we were torn apart and we hated and despised each other and we didn't trust each other you know brother against brother sister against sister husband against wife etc 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 not unlike our contemporary reality but what i really want us to think about is why why and how do we get there what you know what inside of us pushes us there and then once we're there once we've spent time killing each other then what then what um so for me that's the that's the power of writing about the past well let's bring the theological back into that then um because you know you you raise the questions uh but for you uh you've you've said uh i have theological answers uh, in your life choice of being a Christian, mm-hmm. um, how does that how does that interweave then uh, with the spirituality of your novels? Yeah, I think there's a. I said I said this not long ago in a in a public forum, and um, for me, the interesting thing about New Testament Christianity is that it is in some again deeply human way radical it's it's a it is a it is a view of the world in which my role is not to best you to compete with you and somehow win out over you it is uh it's a it's a view of the world in which might does not equal right, you know, to use that old King Arthur saying, in which our role as human beings is in some way to love one another, to care for each other, to to salve each other's wounds. And I believe that. I believe that New Testament Christianity is is a radically different way of thinking and feeling about the world. And so what I'm interested in, I think, is how that instinct, to the extent that it exists, and and again, you can call it being like Jesus, doing what we conceive Jesus might have done. Um, what role that plays in human in the human drama? Um, I guess my approach is different in the sense that it is not prescriptive um rather it's exploratory in a way there is a character named julius christopher who who appears suddenly in a short time to stay here and then dies not too terribly long after that who is a is a um not an archetype (laughs) he's the type of jesus there's a character in Holy Ghost Speakeasy Revival named Jesus, the son of God Smith, the black man, who is in some regards a type of Jesus. And so in both those instances, what I'm busy about, what I'm about is saying, let's, for me, and again, this is, you, you can say I'm only entertaining myself with these questions, but where is Jesus in our world? And the world in which these characters walk and talk and speak and do beautiful things and horrible things and and fall in love and 
fall out of love and in their world where is the Jesus and so what I said the other day and and um, Guy Sales was actually in the audience he was nodding when I said it, that the historical Jesus is, is often argued about doesn't doesn't interest me as much as the the archetype of Jesus and and I'm not trying to dehumanize him I'm not trying to turn him into a, a a pasteboard cutout. I'm I'm really trying to humanize him. I'm trying to bring him into a world where I can where I can understand what his existence might mean. And and I think my characters do something similar. I suppose the the most obvious seeker is Jedediah Robbins in Holy Ghost Speakeasy and Revival because he's an agnostic at the beginning, I think. I don't think he's an outright atheist, but certainly he's an agnostic. And and But yet he is, in a very real sense, a searcher. Um, and, and to me, part of the resolution of that book is how his search culminates and ends. Um, so... What does that mean? What that means is that I'm full of questions about Christianity. I'm full of questions about the reality of a Christ in the world. Because um, I think that's the function of Christ, is to be God in the world, you know. And, and so, fair enough. What does that look like? What does that sound like? What does he have to say? Um, if it's a he, if he is a he. And so my business, now if I were a, um, I don't know what, if I were an essayist, if I were um, or writing a memoir, if I were writing some other genre, of course I could sit down and say, well, here's what it all means. I had this deep search and I discovered this and it's chapter six and now I'm going to tell you what I discovered. Well, that's not the way my imagination works. That's not, that's not what I do. It's like saying to a painter, why aren't you a photographer, you know? Um, the way my imagination works is these characters are searchers like me in that sense, but, and they ask a lot of questions and sometimes those questions are illuminated. Sometimes they get answers. Sometimes they get answers and they, and the answer walks right in front of them and they don't recognize it, you know, which is, you know, seems to me the human experience. So, so there, I don't know. I don't know if that answers the question, but I, I guess what I would say is that, the novels in particular are evidence of the search and they're evidence of of questioning. They're not necessarily evidence of answering in a in a didactic way. Well, I've been uh, fascinated. Uh, by listening to other writers talk about their writing process and, and hearing uh, both you and Wayne Caldwell uh, kind of sharing similar stories then um, <clears throat> kind of building on what you just kind of finished saying, uh, that characters kind of control your imagination. They kind of take on a life of its own, and it's a story that controls you more than you as the author controlling the story. Uh, talk about that as a non-writer, you know, that's a, that's a fascinating thing to me. Well, a lot of what happens in a good novel or a good short story as well, I think rises out of the sort of creative generative imagination. And by that, I mean the subconscious mind. Now, there's a way in which I think I heard somebody, I can't remember now who, Jill McCorkle, maybe. If not, Jill, I'm going to give you credit for it. She said, you know, it's you you have to trust your subconscious mind because that's where the story is coming from. And now, again, what do you what do you know or believe about your subconscious mind? Are you a Freudian? Are you a Jungian? Are you a you know, however, you know, a, a, a mythologist? I don't know. There's lots of ways to approach it, but in essence, the that 
you said, how do you decide what to write about? Well, one of the choices is to who are you going to write about? And most of the time that choice has to do with what character embodies in some sense the question that I'm asking. What character, what kind of character has to live that question? You know, the question of healing in that bright land. The question of the nature of God. Is there a God? And if so, what is its nature in speakeasy? You know, the, the, um, the, the nature of, of hatred and the nature of, uh, of tribalism. And so, you know, again, I need a character who's either going to come face to face with that and respond to it or is in some way going to live it out. So you choose this character and, and the surrounding and put people in motion around him or her. And, and, you, and you know, you have, or I do anyway, I should speak for myself. I have some ideas about where this whole thing's going to go. But a lot of the time, the characters, as they, if, if they work, if they become real in a sense, like the Velveteen Rabbit, if they become real, they they begin to make decisions and they begin to do things and they begin to speak and and interact and in some cases do perfectly horrible things, things that I hope I would never do, and in some cases do quite wonderful things, things I'm probably not even capable of. But 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 they begin to move through the landscape and as they do, the answers emerge in a way. The resolution begins to take some sort of shape. And so Wayne talking about character and other writers say the same thing. And I think what drives that is that the subconscious mind is thinking about this, for lack of a better word. Thinking might not be the right word. Processing, imagining, uh, creating. And it goes on while you're going through your daily life, while you're going to the post office and while you're stopping by the bank and while you're picking up something at Publix for supper. The subconscious mind isn't doesn't care about publics, could care less, you know, it <laughs> doesn't care much about the bank either. What the subconscious mind is about is is these deeper sort of patterns, uh, currents, tides in human awareness, human affairs. And so you in a way you kind of there's a process and, I, you know, Wayne and I've talked about this and I feel confident he does something very similar, you know, that you give the characters to up to those things and when it works and it doesn't always work but when it works the the patterns in their lives emerge and those patterns are illustrative they they help us understand who we are and they help us see the patterns in our own life um when it works best of all many times the characters surprise you they do something they say something they feel something, they realize something that you up to that point had not imagined. You know, one of the pieces of advice that I give young writers on the rare occasion when, you know, I talk to young writers is don't be constrained by what you would do. Don't be constrained by what you would think. In your conscious mind, don't be constrained by what you would let yourself say. Because if you do, your protagonist is going to look and smell and sound and walk and talk a lot like you, you know, mm -hmm. and you don't know a hell of a lot. You know, I mean, in other words, there's, you know, and, and so if you want to learn on some deeper level and see on some deeper level and feel on some deeper level, you have to kind of turn those characters loose and and let them let them go exploring i guess well kind of similarly related to that uh this bright land and, and your most recent book you know my mr size um are kind of whodunits uh and and i, I remember in in one of the interviews i listened to uh somebody was interviewing you and 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 you had said uh because i'm i'm using my primary character and speaking through them. Mm -hmm. um, I can't know what they don't know. Yeah. Uh, as a writer, 
uh, you need to explain that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's 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 a little that's a little. You even use I the, did say that. No, I, I said language. that about that bright land. Yeah, I said about that bright land. And working on that bright land, I can remember Lynn saying to me at some point, you know, and I was I had been describing the book tour, and she'd read some of the early chapters and so forth, and so she knew, you know, basically what what was going on. And she said, "Well, who's the murderer?" And I said, "I don't know." And I wasn't being coy. I really didn't know at that point. And I said, I know who it's not. And and so in describing that, you know, later on in an interview setting, what I said, and you're exactly right, what I said was, in a way, it's kind of cheating on the on the protagonist to know something he doesn't know. Now, that's a little precious. I, 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 I give you that point. I agree. And in the case of uh, my mistress eyes, I knew who the murderer was, but I didn't know how they were killing people. Now that's granted, that's just a little grim, right? For, for this point of the evening, but I didn't, I didn't know how they were doing these things. I knew who was, who it was. And I knew what they were, I knew why they were doing what they were doing, but I didn't know how they were doing it. And then Lynn and I went on a tour of a hard hat tour of Ellis Island and, and saw the answer. It was right there, staring, staring me in the face, anyway. And so, I, I guess one of the things about the who done it is that it is, by design, mysterious. It is quote a mystery unquote. And as you can tell from the things I said earlier, you know, a lot of these the experience writing these books is mysterious in a way, and I'm trying to solve a mystery. I've always felt that the greatest mysteries, the greatest crime novels, the greatest whodunits, the greatest Sherlock's are in part an, an exploration, an excavation into the detective as much as the crime. And so what we're trying to discover is the nature of Sherlock Holmes, which I think is true in those, in those mysteries. What we're trying to discover in in that bright land is the nature of Jake Ballard and can he survive? Can he do what he apparently needs to do to save, in a sense, the community to which he, and during the course of the book he devotes himself and live and still live? And to me, that's the fundamental question. And and the answer is determined by the end of the book. But so there's a nice, um, I don't know, what would you call it, resonance between writing a book that is fundamentally about discovery and, and you know, murder, mystery, or some sort of crime. You know, a mystery is, is, a, is a convenient and effective spine on which to hang the story in that sense well this is just my own curiosity because uh, i noticed in the uh, holy spirit speakeasy um you you play on solomon and jedediah you know the, the uh, nathan was the one that, that names solomon jedediah you know as, as, a, mm-hmm. as that's the only time it's mentioned uh, but you play on that in, in the book and of course, Solomon's supposed to be one who is wise, uh, but Jedediah is often clueless. Uh, yeah, talk yeah. about the interplay of that that theme, I guess. Uh, I suppose, yeah, it's a great question. I and I think it's very it it, it speaks to the heart of that book. I to me, Jedediah's wisdom is lies in the fact that he does not accept easy answers you know he doesn't accept the 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 prescribed answers regardless of where they come from you know he he's he's a good bad man he's a bad good man like the rest of us but his wisdom i think is that he is of an age i guess he's 50 maybe when the book is early 50s so he's older um and he is, I believe, fundamentally uh, a, a searcher. He's a he's um, 
he's a wanderer for one thing. Thus, you know, moves the book moves across the surface of the earth by virtue of the trains, which are a big part of the setting, essentially the plot. And so I think that Jedediah's wisdom is that he knows what he doesn't know. You know, and if you go all the way back to the Greeks, if you if you go to uh, Plato and Socrates, Socrates says the wisest man knows knows he knows not. You know, and and I think Jedediah is the beauty for me in Jedediah is he is as death keeps saying to him he is solo man. He's 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 moving across the face of the earth and contentedly by and large, but but in search of answers. And and most of us, I think, give up on, you know, some point at age 23 or 31 or something. We, you know, searching for answers is just too darn complicated and too darn hard. And so we we're willing to take what you give us and we're willing to accept in some sense the status quo. And but Jedediah has never done that. And it may be because, you know, the tragic experience of losing his wife suddenly when he was younger um, won't let him. He's restless in, the, in that sense. He, he lacks rest. Um, so I think that's his wisdom. You know, he is clueless. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot, much of the time he may, does, <laughs> does stupid stuff. He does, you know, morally culpable stuff. Um, but in the end, I think, I hope, what makes him, I don't know if attractive is the right word, but what makes him compelling for readers is that they, they're willing to assign to Jedediah their own desire to search. You know, I'm going to get up tomorrow and put on my old clothes and my boots and I'm walking out of here. And I'm going to walk until I find the answer. Well, that's what Jedediah is doing through that whole book. And the rest of us just sort of sit and, you know, wait for our favorite show to come on television. And, and you know, and, and so you got to kind of admire him. But his wisdom is in that he knows he doesn't know from much of the book. And then maybe he does. I don't know. Well, that sounds like a good summary. Uh, of of your books as a whole, uh, mm-hmm. the sense of questioning. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that sounds like a good place for us to kind of wrap it up. Uh, so I am deeply grateful uh, that you have uh, given us the wisdom, uh, the insights uh, into the world of the writer, the artist, uh, and how that interweaves for you. So thank you for being with me. You're absolutely welcome. I could not have enjoyed it more. And I appreciate you asking the questions. See, there you go. <laughs> well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. There you I'm go. Rayburn. <laughs> the music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.com dot b-l-u-b-r-r-y dot net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.